0: I encourage you then to take up your copy of the Word, if you have it with you, and open there with me to Philippians, chapter 1, where we'll continue this new series preaching through Paul's letter to the Philippians. We left off last time at at verse 6, but just to keep things in context, I'm going to back up to verse 3 and read through verse 18. Hear now the Word of the Lord. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness. How greatly I long for you with, long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happen to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest, My chains are in Christ, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, as we have come now to the preaching of the Word. We, we are so thankful for the Word and, and the testimony of Scripture. We are thankful that your Word is true and sufficient for all of life. We are thankful that your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We are thankful that your Word is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the very core of our souls, discerning the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And we are ever thankful that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, a word which is able to save the souls of men. Send now your Holy Spirit, we pray, to do that which only he is able to do, to apply the word to your people and to bring understanding and sanctify us and draw us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and into His image. And this we pray in His victorious name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we pick up this morning where we left off last time as we began a series of messages in Paul's letter to the Philippians where we saw that Paul's regular practice is to give thanks and bring his petitions before God with joy as he remembers the Philippian saints there at Philippi. You see, for Paul, all of life is all about Christ and all for Christ. And it is a life, though riddled with trials and hardship, is characterized by deep and abiding joy. This is because... Paul is completely sold out for Christ. So following his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, where he was struck down and blinded, and then taken to Ananias, who laid hands on him. And then he received his sight, and he was baptized, and he received food and rested in the company of the disciples. The very next words we read about Paul in Acts 9 is that immediately, immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues. When we turn to his last written words that we have in Scripture, Paul declares that he is being poured out as a drink offering, that his final departure is at hand, having fought the good fight, finished the course, and kept the faith. And then he closes his letter to Timothy with these words. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. You see, the Apostle Paul laid out the totality of his life as an example for other believers, including us, to follow and to imitate. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern he will write later. In chapter 3 of this letter, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ, He, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So as we consider and read the words of Paul here in Philippians as well as in all of his other letters, let's be mindful, mindful of the call to imitate his life in Christ And that's what I would like for us to do this morning. As we we work through these verses, seeing first the heart, the heart that was inseparable from Paul's preaching Christ. And secondly, the hope that attended his preaching of Christ. And finally, the primacy of preaching Christ no matter the circumstances. So first, let's consider the heart of Paul's preaching Christ Paul continues his letter now in verse 7, writing, It is right for me to think this of you all. Other translations put it this way, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Why? Why Why does Paul write this? Well, I think it's rather obvious. It's because he has them in his heart. Paul's love for all the people goes all the way back to his first proclamation of the gospel to them. As the Lord took Saul hard in his zealous persecuting there on on the Damascus road, he permanently and effectually exchanged his old heart with a new heart, a new disposition, a new love for God and all God's people. Where Paul formerly stood condemned under the law, he was now justified by grace through faith at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. This new heart wrought by the Holy Spirit filled him with a hope that did not wither or grow faint despite all manner of trials and persecutions. And we need to know that this is a hope that all Christians share. It is a hope that doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. A heart that doesn't fully love the Lord and is given to love His people is a heart that is anemic in proclaiming the good news. We see the importance of this love When the lawyer, seeking to test Jesus, asked the question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And you remember the the response Jesus gave. Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus summarized the whole of the law with love God and love your neighbor. Paul's affectionate love for the Philippians was forged in the mutual experience of the grace of God. They had become fellow partakers of that grace and indeed were growing in that same uh, grace and love with him. As Paul declares his heart for the Philippians, he then makes the first mention of his imprisonment here in our text as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel as paul is writing this letter he's been in a roman in roman custody for at least 2 years and thus we read about the reference to his chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel here refers to the opportunity, opportunities that this has afforded paul to testify before magistrates both to defend and to confirm the truth of the gospel. And notice that Paul speaks of defending and confirming the gospel, not defending himself. In one sense, of course, the gospel needs absolutely no defense since it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yet in In another sense, the gospel needs defense and confirmation every time it is preached. As there are often those who raise objections, there are those who deny the truth, who are naysayers. And we have to remember, Peter exhorted us to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us for the hope that is in us. Paul was always ready always ready, even eager, to proclaim the gospel, to preach Christ and Him crucified, to explain to others the reason for His hope and joy, no matter the cost to Him personally. And so then Paul continues in verse 8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the the judicial language, defense, and confirmation in the previous verse has prompted him to essentially swear that what he is about to say is true. Or perhaps the oath stems from Paul speaking of his own private, personal emotions, which only God is able to truly know. Either way, these are the inspired words of Scripture. And we see here the depth of Paul's longing to be with the Philippians and to experience in person, face to face, their fellowship in the gospel. We also see that he longs to be with all of the saints at Philippi, not just some of them. And this this is a gut-felt longing that comes from Jesus Christ. As one commentator put it, Paul's deeply emotional expression of Christian affection in this verse is not primarily... The sign of a gushing temperament, but of a gushing Christology. I love that phrase, a gushing Christology. Paul's affections and emotions were informed and directed by his understanding of Christ and who he is. As we set our eye upon Christ and come to know who he truly is and place all our trust in him, all of our trust, the understanding of our heart is enlarged, and the motives and intents of our hearts are shaped and directed according to that which is more pleasing to God and more useful to His purposes and the advance of the gospel. And so in these words, Paul also reveals his great pastoral heart. These believers are not abstract statistics to the Apostle. He is no mere hireling, but is like the Lord Himself, a good shepherd, who cares for His sheep and knows them by name. Paul truly cares for and loves the saints in Philippi. Their well-being matters to him. The power of the gospel is on display here in the supernatural affection that it produces in Paul, the loving heart that is renewed and made manifest not only for Christ Jesus, but also for those who belong to him. This is the heart that motivated Paul's preaching Christ, and it has been given to us as an example to follow. And then in verses 9 through 11, we see Paul's hope of preaching Christ. As you may recall from the first message about a month ago, while while on the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas obediently followed the redirecting guidance of the Holy Spirit out of Asia where they had planned to go and on into Macedonia. There they preached the gospel of Christ to Lydia just outside Philippi, and she and her household were converted. Then they preached Christ in the city of Philippi and ended up casting out a spirit of divination from a young girl, thereby spoiling the fortune-telling business of some men, which lands them in jail, which leads to the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And so, through God's mighty providential hand, the church is established there at Philippi. And not long after that, The visit comes to an end and they continue their missionary journey to Thessalonica. And you might think that having proclaimed the gospel, having seen the conversion of souls, having baptized them into the church, that Paul's work there was done. But as we have already seen, not only was the fruit of evangelism manifested, but there was also the establishment of spiritual family bonds which resulted in hearts bound in the affection of Christ Jesus. Therefore, Paul continues to labor in prayer for the saints at Philippi. And the content of his prayers, the hope of his petitions before the Lord, are given as a series of that's in these verses, that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment, that They may approve things which are excellent, that they may be sincere without offense, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The hope of preaching Christ to the Philippians did not end with their conversion, but continued into a great desire and hope and longing for their sanctification. Paul's hope was that they would not be stagnant in their Christian faith, but that they would grow from being babes in the faith to ever greater spiritual maturity. In fact, he was confident of this very thing, that he who had begun a good work in them would complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so he prays. He prays to that end for the Philippian church. He prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. As we look at Scripture, we see that love holds the position of prominence, of prominence as a defining mark in the life of the Christian. It is identified as greater than either faith or hope in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it is listed first in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Jesus told his disciples, as you recall, that people would know that they were Christians by their love for one another. <clears throat> we read in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love love is so central to the character of the Christian life that if we fail to love others, it calls into question whether we truly love God. And so Paul prays for their love to abound We also see here in Paul's prayer that biblical love is not something that is fixed and stagnant, but that grows over time and overflows into our thoughts and words and actions. And it does so more and more as we are more sanctified. It is a love that should abound in knowledge and discernment as well. Let's not dismiss that. This is Paul's great desire, which should be the great desire of every pastor and the desire of anyone who would disciple a brother or sister in Christ or share the gospel with their family members or with a stranger on the sidewalk. And that desire is to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is that evangelistic desire of every Christian to a lesser or greater degree that others would know the love of Christ. Do you want your unsaved family members to know Christ? Yes, you do. And your neighbors to know Christ and to grow in Christ and to grow in their love such that it would abound more and more. How do we do this? The Christian needs to grow in his knowledge and discernment so that his love would abound more and more. And how is this accomplished? As Paul continues in Colossians, we were quoting from there, he writes, Him, that is Christ, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Perfect in Christ. Complete in Christ abounding in love which has been shaped and trained by His Holy Word in preaching and warning and teaching, is how that love grows more and more and is directed and made more and more perfect and complete. But too often, too often as Christians, we pit love which we construe to be as non-judgmental affirmations over against biblically informed discernment. And, in, and we end up embracing a motto that goes way back to the 1920s. Doctrine divides, service unites. Admittedly, some churches have clung to truth and neglected love or, or vice versa. In Revelation Jesus praised the church at Ephesus for its doctrinal vigilance, but he rebuked them for having left their first love. But speaking to the church at Thyatira, by contrast, Jesus commended her love, service, and patience, but critiqued her compromise with falsehood. To both of these extremes, either love or doctrine, Paul says, nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. And he tells the Philippians, in effect, I am asking God, I am praying to God to give you a love that acts for others' well-being and a love that knows what others' well-being really is because you will see people as they really are and speak God's truth as it really is. Christ's love goes beyond good intentions, beyond well-meaning affection, beyond abstract affirmation. It is characterized by biblically informed knowledge and biblically trained discernment. And from the text, we see three outcomes hoped for as God grants Paul's petition by causing the Philippians to abound in discerning love. First they will approve what is excellent. Second, they will become sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness. And third, their sanctification will tend toward the greatest end imaginable for any creature, and that is the glory and praise of God. Approving what is excellent, what does that mean? Approving what is excellent requires Mature Christian discernment, and that means learning to love what God loves. While some things are clearly right or wrong, good or bad, there are so many things that are not so clear-cut. It is especially difficult to distinguish between what is good and what is best, what is permissible from what is preferable. That is why Christian love must grow in knowledge and all discernment. And to do this, we must have our minds renewed according to and by the Word of God. Being found sincere and without offense here may be also translated pure and blameless. Paul's prayers that they will grow up into Christ without any mixture of worldly wisdom or vain philosophies in their thoughts or actions. The result of approving what is excellent in a is a life that is clean and pure both inwardly and outwardly. And then Paul appends till the day of Christ in this petition. He prays for an increasing experience in their present lives that will characterize how they will be in the last day. We might summarize the progression here in verses 9 and 10 as love abounds in knowledge and discernment for the purpose of approving what is excellent with the result that believers become more pure and blameless blameless in this life in anticipation of being completely pure and blameless blameless when Christ returns. And how is this even possible? How can Paul pray this way with hope and confidence? It is because it is because Paul knows who they truly are. They are new creations. They are filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus. Paul's ultimate hope in this prayer is the glory and praise of God. On the day of Christ, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, God will be praised and glorified because of the fruit He has produced in and through His people. All that God does through the believer is ultimately so that His own greatness may be displayed and recognized to the praise of the glory of His grace. People of God, know who you are in Christ and lean into that understanding. Know that you have already been given the Holy Spirit and been filled with the fruits of righteousness and so walk therein. And then in verses 12 through 18, Paul turns to the primacy of preaching Christ. As Paul had preached Christ to the Philippians, he loved them with his whole heart, and he continued in hopeful prayer for their sanctification. He longed to be with them, and he longed to see what great things Christ had done in and among them. And these things were true, even though he had suffered much and was now imprisoned, awaiting trial. In fact, he wants to encourage them by letting them know that his present bondage has actually been used of God for the furtherance of the gospel. And so he rejoices in his primary objective of preaching Christ. Verses 12 through 14. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I can't read these words here from Paul without recalling those words from Joseph to his brothers regarding having been sold into slavery by them. But as for you, Joseph says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. No doubt Paul's confinement was intended to shut him up, to thwart the advance of the gospel, but it hadn't turned out that way. God meant it for good. As Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The irony here is that while Paul has While Rome has imprisoned Paul in an effort to prevent his message from spreading, that very imprisonment had become the means by which the gospel was advancing. Paul may be in chains, but the gospel has been further unleashed. The primacy of preaching Christ motivates Paul to not despair in his circumstances, but rather acknowledge the providence of God and be faithful in him those circumstances. And Paul's example here points us to the goodness of evaluating all our circumstances in light of the progress of the gospel. Are we thinking through our trials, our sufferings, our prosperity, and our opportunities as means by which God is advancing the reach of the gospel? Do we think about things this way? Or have we fallen into seeing God's blessings as an end rather than the means of advancing His gospel. What is God doing right here and right now in my life, in your life? What is the more excellent perspective and opportunity that God has placed right before us if we would but see it? While Paul acknowledges that he is in Caesar's custody, it is the fact that he is a bondservant of Christ that is preeminent. And apparently, Paul communicated this reality to anyone who would listen, since it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that his chains are in Christ. And I, and I think it's, it's just fun to imagine the Philippian jailer, as this part of the letter is read for the very first time in his hearing. Can you see it now? Breaking into a knowing smile as he recalled his own conversion as a result of Paul sharing the gospel while in chains. That's so like Brother Paul, he may have thought. And these weren't the only times that Paul used his various imprisonments as opportunities to preach the gospel, were they? He did so before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. He even asked the Colossian church to pray for God to open doors that he might preach the gospel while in chains. And so then in verse 14, Paul reveals another benefit of his chains. That most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by his chains and are therefore much more bold to speak the word without fear. Examples are so important to us. Imitation is designed into the way we learn and, and live our lives. Fear in one person begets more fear in others. courage by one often leads to courage by others. The natural response to Paul's imprisonment would be to cower in fear and to stop preaching. But upon hearing of the furtherance of the gospel, made possible by Paul's bold proclamation while in chains, encouraged many of the other brothers in Christ to continue preaching Christ with even greater boldness. What an excellent and encouraging truth to remember in the fruit of Paul's example here. Even as, we, even as we live our lives in our particular context here with one another, and we provide an example to one another of faithfully living the Christian life. In verses 15 through 18, Paul brings even greater clarity to the primacy of preaching Christ as he continues. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Here we see Paul describing two different groups who are preaching Christ. And I don't know about you, but this first group is rather difficult for me to understand. Some men preach Christ from envy and strife and some from goodwill. Paul tells us that those preaching Christ from envy and strife are motivated by selfish ambition without sincerity. And thinking that they're doing so would add to Paul's affliction in his bonds and in his chains. They are preaching Christ to exalt himself and humiliate Paul. It appears that they see themselves as Paul's rivals, for rivals for preeminence in the Christian community in Rome, perhaps. Perhaps since Paul appears to be sidelined by his legal troubles, his bondage, In their envy and rivalry, they are seeking some sort of advantage or somehow keeping score of whose ministry is more successful. Sounds very shameful and sad to me. But as an aside, let me note that that this is a tendency in our fallen nature. We tend to see in others the motives that they have. This can be good motives, but it could also be bad motives. It's possible that these preachers were assuming that Paul was also preaching Christ with selfish ambition. Said another way, when we find ourselves seeing or assuming sinful or bad motives in something someone has said or done, we would do well to check our hearts and honestly evaluate our own motives first. But isn't it interesting how Paul responds to all of this? Rather than striking back, or defending himself, or rebuffing their wrong motives, he is glad for their success. As long as they are truly preaching Christ, he doesn't care who gets the credit, or by whose name they heard the gospel. As long as they were truly preaching Christ, accurately setting forth the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, in his perfect obedience... Sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection, and explaining that sinners are united to Jesus and His saving benefits by trusting in Him alone, and abandoning all trust in their own efforts. And knowing this, Paul can rejoice. Of course, we know clearly from his letter to the Galatians that Paul had a zero-tolerance policy with those who would preach another gospel, so we can heartily assumed that he was rejoicing by those who were preaching the gospel. And what about those who preached Christ from goodwill? They knew that Paul was the real deal. They spread the gospel in love for Paul, yoking together for the sake of the good news in Christ. They recognized and acknowledged God's approval of Paul's ministry, knowing that he had been placed there confined by chains through God's sovereign appointment for the defense of the gospel. This must have been a great encouragement to Paul, to know the faithfulness of these men, to preach Christ without imputing wrong motives to Him, or even to be emboldened by His chains. But even the greater encouragement, the greatest encouragement, I might say, was the knowledge that Christ was being preached For Paul, that was the primacy of preaching Christ. It is clear from Scripture that Paul knows that the whole of preaching Christ is not about his personal successes, his personal comfort, or his influence as a religious leader. It's all about Jesus. The grace that he displays and the glory that he deserves, it's all about Jesus. And so Paul is able to preach Christ while in chains, and even rejoice that Christ is being preached by those who would preach Christ from selfish ambitions, supposing to add affliction to his chains. How is Paul able to bear up under such adversity and manifesting love, hope, and joy? How is he able to do this? The source of his emotional perspective in adversity is not based on some stoicism or Stoic theory that that taught adherents to, to brace themselves against life's disappointment through indifference or emotional detachment. No, Paul's source of joy is a person, the eternal son of God, who always has been equal with God the Father, but did not use his equality for his own comfort and convenience, but rather he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. And this is an astounding message. The good news of amazing grace has set Paul free. Free from himself and his previous pursuit of self-exalting righteousness in the law. It enables Paul to say, as we see a few verses later in this chapter, It is his earnest expectation and hope that in nothing he will be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Christ, who is the subject of Paul's message, is also the very center and core and purpose of his life and the source of his peculiar strength and joy. While Paul is an excellent example to us of commitment, of faith, of practice, of selfless devotion and service, and of righteous gospel zeal, only one person can set your heart free from the heavy burdens of sin and all the other burdens that we know in this life. Free to sing while imprisoned, even as Paul and Silas did at Philippi. Free to rejoice to rejoice in the success of our rivals and free to lay down our life for others. That person is not Paul. That person is the Lord Jesus whom Paul served in whom Paul devoted his whole heart and placed his whole hope. The Lord of lords who became servant of all, who laid down his life as a ransom for many, who has taken up his life again, who now calls you to surrender to his grace and to find in him the joy for which your heart was made, a joy that springs from fountains far deeper, far deeper than the uncertain circumstances of your lives today, and a joy that comes from the infinite joy Of God the Father and God the Son through God the Holy Spirit. May it be. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we receive your word with gladness. We thank you that in Christ you have given us new hearts with new affections. We thank you that in Christ we have the hope of glory. We therefore pray that your spirit would so magnify Christ in us, that our love would abound more and more, that we would approve things which are excellent, and that we would be pure and blameless, blameless till the day of Jesus Christ. And this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.